the book of Leviticus, chapter 25. But I want to speak to you this morning with a, if you wish, a revelatory or prophetic hat on. Whenever you stand in this place, you can take on a number of different roles. Pastor Shepherd, teacher, trying to move information. But there are other moments that, for me anyway, are purely revelatory. And each year, for whatever reason, revelatory type people tend to look out over the coming season to try and inquire upon God, what, it, what are you doing, what are you saying in this next season? And so this is that moment that I want you to put on ears today, not just to hear a message that's got some information or some application, but hear something from heaven that if you will take hold of it, it will take hold of you. You see, that's, that's how God's word works, is that when you grab it, it will grab you. And if you will do that today, there's some really neat stuff here. Leviticus chapter 25, beginning in verse 10. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Do you like it so far? It shall be a jubilee for you. And each one of you is to return to his family property and each to his own clan. The 50th shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow, do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. And in this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to his own property. Now, the rest of chapter 25 of Leviticus unpacks more and more details what Jubilee looks like. But these few verses give us the essence of that which God is saying and doing. Now, last year, the world was supposed to come to an end. Again. And depending on what calendar you were ascribing to or what you were listening to in that moment, last year was the Shemitah year. It was the blood moons year. Anybody pick up any of this weirdness that was out there floating around, all right? And so basically everything was supposed to come to an end. Not in like Y2K. The world was supposed to end then for different reasons. Remember? All those pesky little decimal points and zeros and the world was going to collapse. And so, not only did it not happen in the year 2000, it didn't happen last year. But as we come to this new year, it is year 5776. 5776 on the Hebrew calendar. Now you say, what does that mean to me? Now we've been in this year since September or so. And say, how does that have any significance whatsoever? It's because 5776 on the Hebrew calendar is the year of Jubilee. It is a 50th year. The last one was roughly at the end of World War I. The next one was around 1967. If you know anything about Israel history, those were pretty significant years in the life of Israel. And now here we are again, another 50 years. Now, hear me, depending, I know medical advancement and cryogenics and I got all that, but most of us will only live through one, maybe two jubilees. 
1967, I didn't know anything about anything, including not knowing God. So that one kind of came and went for me. And so unless something remarkable happens, which I almost, I kind of hope it doesn't because I just want to go on and be with God. Are you with me? So this is, this is it. Are you with me? This is something that I need to get hold of in this moment like you. By way of personal testimony, this is the scariest prophetic word I've ever given. Not for fear of what is coming on the earth, but for my life, the concern that somehow I won't hear what I'm saying and I won't reach in and get everything that God is wanting to release in this moment. You see, it's many times it's, it's easier for, for prophetic folk just to say the sky is falling. Well, that's easy. Of course the sky is falling. Evil is rising in the world. Things are wearing out. God is setting the stage for his miraculous return. And as a result of that, the contrast between the world and the kingdom is going to continue to get greater. Nod your head to that. You don't have to be prophetic to see that. All you have to do is read the news and get in traffic. But 5776, Jubilee. What are the benchmarks of jubilee first of all redemption slaves are set free on that 50th year you're done it doesn't matter if you've been serving for six years or one year you're free restoration of land you see it's an interesting concept that god has is that everything belongs to him the land, Scripture, it kind of, kind of reminds you of a few passages of Scripture. The earth and all that's in it belongs to the Lord. Silver and gold belongs to me. The cattle on a thousand hills. But in this understanding, yes, this, this family group or maybe the land has gotten out of the, the, the family, the clan, if you wish, and it's been mortgaged or it's, it's, there's been a debt placed against it. But God understands something that it's all mine anyway. I mean, do you realize that you may be slugging away at the mortgage in your house, but at some point, somebody else go own that dirt. Smile when you say that. But it's a restoration of land back to the original family. Rest. There'll be no sowing or reaping during Jubilee. Only what naturally is produced off of the land, because it's a year of rest for the land as well. And then there's a reset and a restart I was actually, actually at, uh, uh, our church our church is in Phoenix week before last and the conference name interestingly enough was a reset conference this word worked pretty well there but Jubilee is a picture of Christ's redemptive work to us all debts released smile when you say that Against people and property. Do you realize every debt against your life, past, today, and future debts, they've all been paid for because of what Christ has done. Hallelujah. You and I live in the reality of jubilee from a standpoint of righteousness every day of our life. All debts released. Secondly, inheritance restored. Do you realize that the inheritance that was squandered 
when Adam and Eve decided to eat fruit, whatever has been lost through sin has been restored to you and I. Now, now the promises and the covenants made with Abraham extend to you and I today. And then rest. Land was given rest. And we are given rest. Why? Because we can rest from our works so that we can rest in his completed work. That's a marvelous thing, isn't it? And because of all of these, it's a moment that we can indeed restart being debt-free, restored, and rested. That we're not only born again, but we can now start again. How many of you feel like many times, man, I just wish I could just hit the reset button and just start over? I'm not talking about one of these soft resets. I'm talking about one of these hard resets. You know, when you get on tech support and they talk about hard reset, that's not a good moment, is it? Because you're going to spend the rest, of the rest of the week trying to figure out, what else did I erase off this thing? But God comes and he does these resets in our life. But listen to me, saints. This is a message that's to the church. Jubilee is not a message to the world. It's a message to the church, to God's people. And it's only attainable by grace. Through faith and the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 12 through 13. We've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. Do you realize that you will never understand that which God has acquired on your behalf through the world? It's not going to happen and it never will. And I'm not just talking about now those things that we receive in this realm, in this lifetime. But we can never understand it if we don't have the understanding of the Holy Ghost. This is what we speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit. Expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. And those words have to be heard by spiritual ears. And we've got to see something through spiritual eyes, not just through the eyes of the world or even the eyes of the enemy. Numbers, the 13th chapter. Some young men went over to look at some land that God had intended for Israel to have. Moses sends over these spies, and you know this story pretty well. And they come back and they see and they say, you know, you're right. This is a great piece of dirt. It's everything that we ever dreamed it was, it would be. But there's only one problem. There's some really bad folk that live there. There's a lot of them. They're big and there is absolutely no way we're going to be able to walk into that place. But then Caleb, but you love Caleb. He silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the man who had gone said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. Fascinating to me that Caleb saw the same thing in the natural the other spies saw. He saw the land and he saw the, and he, and he saw the opposition. 
He was seeing, he assessed the same information that the other spies came back and said, we can't do it. Caleb said three things. This is another message. He silenced the people before Moses. The first thing you have to do, you've got to shut some other voices out of your life. You've got to shut out the negativity. You've got to shut out the toxic relationships. You've got to shut out all of that foolishness that tells you all the reasons why something cannot happen. It starts right there. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can say is, would you shut up, please? Be nice. Sometimes you need to say that to you. Now, you don't have to say please to the devil. You can just tell him to shut up. He silenced the people before Moses and he said this. He said, we should and we can. Now, I got to tell you, this is not a you should message. If I hear one more you should message, I'm going to open a vein, I think. I know all about what I should do. What I should be eating and the walks I should be taking and the time I should be in my Bible and the prayer I should be having that I don't have. This isn't about the shoulds. But we move from the shoulds to we can. We can. And we need the spirit, the courage, and the eyesight of Caleb in this moment to step into the promises of Jubilee. And I want to give you five points in closing this morning to help us navigate this moment. The very first is the word paradox. I've already mentioned this, and this is the paradox, is that Jubilee is not available in the world or through the world. Now, we know that at one level, and yet, how many of us still take our emotional cues our well-being from how the stock market did last week anybody weirded out or the fact that we just turned a hundred billion dollars loose to iran i mean we could we could look around and we could get really agitated in our souls could we not nod your head sometimes all you got to do is just roll out of bed and look at the kids said, I don't, I don't even need to listen to the news. All I got to do is just start trying to pay bills and just look at the family. But we look around and we try to get some sense of stable ground underneath our feet or some kind of stability for our soul from the world. And we wonder while we see Christians and they, 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 they my goodness, they need Dramamine just to do life. They really do because they're up and they're down all the time. It's why Jesus, when describing the relationship, he talks about himself as a what? As a rock. Because rocks generally don't what? They don't move. Paradox. Luke 21, it says, men will faint from terror. It says men's hearts will fail them for fear of what is coming on the earth. And yet what did Jesus turn around and say in John 16? He says, I've told you these things in advance. Why? That you may have peace because in this world you'll have trouble. But take heart, I have done what? Overcome the world. 
Both passages speaking about the heart. On the one hand, if you tie to the world, your heart will fail you. It's not just too many donuts and Big Macs. It's fear. So you mean I can? No, that's not what I said. But then Jesus talks about the heart is that take heart. I've overcome the world. And how we negotiate this paradox called life is going to determine not only the condition of our spirit, but our emotional and, yes, our physical health as well. The refugee crisis, we look around and we see millions of people that have been displaced. A humanitarian crisis. This past fall, I was in Berlin, Germany. My wife and I, we were there in part of a, a, a training venue that we have through every nation. And this man had asked a number of us, could, 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 could you have lunch with me? I want to share something with you. And this man is right in the middle of the, quote, refugee crisis in Europe. And he's beginning to talk about the salvations, the churches that are spontaneously forming within these refugee camps. And I thought to myself, my goodness, the nations are coming to us. And we look at it on one hand and, and we wring our hands and we say, oh my goodness. And yet, as a result of this, listen folks, God is often moved among a people by dispersing them. <laughs> Read your church history. Who knows what God is doing in this moment? Islam. We begin to use that word and it just begins to bring forth certain connotation and fear and oh my goodness and then you got certain folk and certain political, you know, parts of the whatever the planet and they say, well, we need to do this and we need to do that. And yet could it be that in this moment in history that God is bringing visibility to this group of folk so that the church can mobilize itself to reach this people group? If we can move beyond the fear and see the opportunity. Move beyond the opposition that says round them up and send them off. Rather than hallelujah. They've come to us to hear this gospel. The economy. There's always going to be something. If it's not China, it's going to be the cost of oil. It's going to be something going to happen somewhere. That's going to cause financial markets to get jittery and janky. But the only question is, whose economy is being threatened? The question for you and me is, is your economy tied to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of this earth? Now, if your economy is tied to the kingdom of this earth, be afraid. Be very afraid. But if your economy is tied to God... If through tithes and offerings you have connected your financial house with God's house, whereby which there is never ending supply for you, let me just tell you, you don't have to worry about what happens with the Dow when the market's open tomorrow. You don't have to worry about what's going on with oil or China or anybody else because God knows. Lily of the valley. Sparrows. He takes care of all of them. <laughs> 
certainly he can take care of you. But this is the paradox that we live in. Secondly, is passage and permission. Keys. We give keys to our kids to entertain them, don't we? Well, at least we used to until our car keys cost $200. Because <laughs> now they lose your car keys in the couch, and I mean, it's a very expensive proposition. But generally, we give children, children love keys. You know, they're jangly, and they make noise, and they, they have no understanding at all of what a key represents. You know, God's people have been given a set of keys as well. Jesus said to Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. And yet you and I have been given keys. But like many children, we're jingling and jangling the keys. And we, well, I got me some keys. But let me just tell you, I can give you my keys. But unless you do something with those keys, they mean nothing. Unless you know where my house is and you know which one is the house key. Unless you know which automobile in the parking lot belongs to this key. Those keys just represent something that could be. They don't represent anything in actuality. And let me just tell you to you. This is a moment that God's people need to stop playing with their keys and using their keys. Of figuring out what does this key mean for me in my life right now for my wife, for my children, for my finances. And let me say this to you. What has been previously closed is now going to be open to you in this season. Doors that have been closed, promotions, jobs, finances, certain things that have been closed to you in this moment of jubilee, God is getting ready to open some supernatural doors that you had no idea would ever open again. Now listen to me carefully. Some of you, you need to ask again. Said, so you know what? I asked, I did how many times? Jesus was not impressed with numbers. He said 70 times 7. And that wasn't a literal 490. He was just saying, keep on. Keep on knocking, keep on asking, it says in Matthew. And for some of you, it says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Some of you have stopped asking. But listen to me, hear me today by the word of the Lord. Some of you need to ask again. Some of you need to knock again. Some of you need to try those doors that have previously been locked to you. You need to try the door again. Because God has unlocked it on your behalf. Hmm. For some people, those doors are prison doors. Acts 16, Paul and Silas have had a real bad day. They've been beaten, they're chained. And so you and I, we would be probably not having a worship moment. We probably would be having a, I'm going to talk to my attorney about this. This ain't right. I mean, we, we would, we'd be looking for some satisfaction. But they're worshiping. And in that moment, the ground begins to shake. And it says that the foundations of the prison were shaken and the doors blew open. You know, some of you, the doors have blown open to your prison, but you haven't moved out of it yet. The story is told about elephants that when they're very young, if you chain them up, 
to something stationary and they have a chain. And years they live like that, eventually you can just remove the chain. And they don't realize they can walk around, but they're so inculcated to this one position, they never veer from it. How many of us, God has opened the prison door? Depression, addiction, lust, whatever it might be. And the door's open. And we're saying, oh God, God's saying the door's open. What more do you want me to do? The door is open. And it's time to come out of that door. And what was the catalyst that blew those doors open? Listen to me. It was worship. Something that's going to mark this season. That's going to exacerbate what I'm saying. Accelerate the process of these doors opening. Is worship in your life. Now, let me just tell you, this is the one or 2% on top of the water of the iceberg. Your worship, it should not be constituted by whatever is led up here for 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. Let me just tell you, that's not even the garnish on the side of the plate. Worship is your life. Worship is your priority. Worship is what comes out of your thinking. Worship is who you are. Hear me. And God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. How do you do that? It's got to be you, baby. You can't wait to be taken somewhere or led somewhere. Just like Paul and Silas. Yeah, it's been a bad week. Matter of fact, it's been a bad year. As a matter of fact, it's been a bad 10 years. God just says, but will you worship? God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. Really? Really? Seriously? You really believe? Uh-huh. Right. Because if you really believe that, your worship would never be affected by what's going on around you. Oh, I'm moving on. I'm in trouble already. And you're not identified any longer about whatever that thing was that you were imprisoned by. John 5, the man at the pool, 38 years, almost four decades. And in this moment, John, Jesus comes by and he says, get up, take up your mat and walk. And all of a sudden now, it wasn't just the liberty of being able to walk. It was the responsibility of health. Uh-oh. You mean I got to? Yeah, you do. You got to clean up behind you now. You got to get up and get productive. You've got to stop. You got to start bearing a little fruit. Uh oh. It was easy when I was down here just saying, I'm busted and I'm good. Pay me. God says, get up and walk. And there's a responsibility to our freedom. Hmm. Passage. Doors are opening. Third is possession. Possession. And I don't mean demonic possession. I mean ownership. The Friday morning. Prior to the Friday evening when we needed our building, we couldn't use it. We didn't have the necessary permits. 
And through a series of miracles, which you'll hear more about, God did in three hours what most of the time through governmental systems usually takes weeks and months. God did in three hours. But what was fascinating is that it wasn't an issue of debt. It was an issue of access. We owned it, but we didn't have access to it. There was no debt against it, but we still couldn't use it. Do you realize that the devil is trying to legally keep you out of that which you already own? You see, we need to redefine possession as not just what's on paper. Oh, you've got the paper in front of you. Somebody counted 60,000 promises in this Bible of things that God has acquired on your behalf. But possession is not just the legal document. It's whether or not we have access to it. This is what ownership is. It's possession plus access. Joshua asked the Israelites, how long are you going to wait before you take possession of the land that the Lord has given you? In other words, it's a done deal. It's happened. How, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for to step all the way in? And there are resources and gifts, I believe, both natural and spiritual, that are going to be supernaturally released to you this year. Some have been previously hidden, but will now be revealed. You know, many people think, well, but why now? I don't know. I have no idea. But many times we think that God has withheld something from us when in reality, he simply stored it for us. There's a big difference in the mentality of a God that withholds and a God that stores. There's a big, there's a big relational gap between the two things. Are you hearing me here? You know, there are things, I've got perfect grandchildren. I do. Imperfect children who have somehow yielded me perfect grandchildren. It's a miracle. And there are things that I would love to give my two-year-old or my four-year-old or six-year-old grandchild. And yet, the reality is, they're not ready for it. If I were to give them those things that are of the most valuable, they would have no idea what to do with them at two years old. They would barely know even how to be appreciative of it because they don't even know what it is. Do you realize for you and I, that's the same way it is with God? Is that God has all this stored, but if, if somehow it had been prematurely released to us, we would have become prodigals with it. We would have had no idea what to do with it. Which takes me to my fourth point, is prodigals. This was something that just kind of got dropped on me, but I really believe this is the year God's going to bring some prodigals back home to you. And every one of us have some prodigals around our life. Could be a spouse, could be a child. But how many of you know that God specializes in prodigals? You know why he specializes in prodigals? Is that he got you. Say, well, I was, yeah, you were. But you know, just beyond bringing home, if you wish, the natural prodigals, there are many, I believe, of those of us who are in the family who are functional prodigals. What do I mean by that? 
It means we really believe like that youngest son that we're scared to come back and ask again because maybe we've squandered our inheritance or we thought we did. Listen to me, saints. We've all squandered something. Maybe it was just a block of time. Maybe it was the investment of a gift or talent God gave you. Maybe it was a business. Maybe it was something in the natural. But the reality is, like that youngest son, every one of us in this room at some point, we feel like the prodigal, what we've squandered an inheritance. But listen to me. Your heavenly father has plenty more where that came from. Listen to me. And sometimes we're just so afraid. I just can't ask again. I can't go back. I just know God didn't have any more. No. Ask me again. Ask me again. And I believe that we need to end being functional prodigals in the church. To step all the way into our inheritance irrespective of what the devil tries to say to us about our past. Well, you didn't practice. Well, you didn't do this. Well, you didn't do that. So what? My heavenly father can add as many days, weeks, months, or years to my life on this earth as he needs to add. Are you with me? Let me tell you, when he's finished, I'll stop breathing. But until he's finished, I'll continue to breathe. It's not complicated. And God can add years to our life. Finances are an easy thing for God. Are you hearing me here? Let's stop walking around like that youngest son who's afraid. Then now what did that dad do? He ran toward him. You study this culturally. Dads didn't get up and run to their kids. No. Dads didn't even get up. But the father saw the kid coming. Put my robe on him. That's the good one, by the way. Not that old raggedy terry cloth thing. Good, get the good one. And kill the fatted calf. Do you realize this was not just some barbecue? This was a specific animal that was being raised for sacrifice for the Day of Atonement when it came around on an annual. This was a special animal. But this occasion trumped even what that animal had been bred for and raised for. And then the last is what I call the practices of Jubilee. You know, promises are great. Prophetic proclamation, declare, decree, name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. They're all wonderful. But what are the practical steps of how we receive a word like this? I want to give you three. The first is the practice of simplicity. How many of you have watched any of the tiny house phenomena? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you keep smiling like that. Somehow I'd like to do a five years later of putting a family together in 200 square feet to find out what kind of homicides occurred during that 200 square foot adventure. Let me just tell you. All right. But, you know, we, we, we look at this and beyond just all of the, oh, that's really cool. We look at something philosophical that's driving this. Something that we realize my life has gotten unnecessarily cluttered. You feel that way sometimes? Even if it's just trying to keep all of your technology updated. 
You know what I'm talking about? There's another update. Shoot me now. Have you got the latest? No. But the practice of simplicity, and listen to me, simplicity doesn't mean simple. So yeah, it does. Let me tell you, if that's what you're aiming for, you'll never find it because we live in an increasingly complex world. But simplicity means focused. That's how we've got to redefine this word. Is not to think that we can get rid of everything and get rid of all of our cares and get rid of that wife and, you know, send those kids off to the grandparents and, you know, shoot the dog. I mean, whatever else we think that we got to do, you know, get rid of the house plants and get some artificial ones. And so we got all these ideas of how we can simplify. But how many of you know that there'll just be another form in the mail for you to send back? It's not about simplicity. It's about focus. That's what this is about. So we have to practice this. But to do it, we've got to declutter. Hear me. I'm not talking about going through your closets now. But I'm talking about, yes, going through your spiritual and your emotional closets. I don't know about you, but all of these thoughts that we deal with all the time. And we wonder, why is it so hard for me to pray? Why is it so hard for me to find God? It's because everything else is in there. There's a practice of simplicity, but that leads us to the, to the practice of priority. You realize you have to practice priority. Priority doesn't just happen. That's called the tyranny of the urgent. And men and women that live their life based on 911. And there's some folk that live that way. They just, they just firemen, they just jump around and put out that fire and jump over here and put out. They barely know what to do if a normal life ever showed up. You've got to practice priority. And mastery is not just repetition, but it's focus. It's learned practice. Gladwell's 10,000 hours. As a musician, I can tell you, you can spend 10,000 hours with an instrument in your hand and never fully learn how to play it. It's whether or not you're really focused on what you're doing and you're working at it. That's how you develop mastery. Proverbs 4, verses 25 through 27. It says, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet. Take only ways that are firm. Don't swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. Hebrews 12 talks about fixing our eyes on what? Jesus. You've got to practice that. And then third is the practice of rest. Listen to me. Most of us don't feel like we deserve rest. I haven't worked hard enough. It's why we love the GTDs. It's why we love the getting things done. And we love our list. Check, check, check. Hallelujah. I got me some checklist righteousness today. We love it. The problem is, if we're tying our self-esteem and our worth and our soul to our check, check, check. Let me just tell you, it'll never work. If I can just produce enough. Last time I checked, the Bible called that self-righteousness. And yet, how dare we ignore the principle of the Sabbath that God himself established? 
God didn't establish the Sabbath for himself. Listen to me. He wasn't tired. He was finished. But he set something in place for you and for me. Do you realize that it was that, that there is no beginning and end on the Sabbath day? Look at the other six. There was a beginning and an end, but on the Sabbath, there was no beginning and no end. Why is that? Is that we're supposed to be continuously in that Sabbath. It's why it says in Hebrews 4, let us strive to enter that rest. You want to work at something? Work at resting. You know, we, we, spend, we spend money, we block out times on our calendar, we come back from our vacations in worse shape than when we left. Well, it's another 50 weeks trying to pay for that. I'm rested. I'm talking about not just something that we do on a seventh day. And yes, that's important. But I'm talking about something in our souls and our spirits and in our thinking where we strive to enter the rest of God, God's finished, completed work in you, in your spouse, in your children. Let me just tell you, you've got to practice that because it doesn't happen naturally. Everything in our world is geared toward more and productivity. Your worth is connected with what you can produce. And yet everything in the kingdom is completely 180 degrees from that. Your worth is never about what you can or will produce. Your worth has always been about the fact that God said, I want JC. And because I'm willing to exchange my life for his, his worth is forever secured. It doesn't get any more costly than that. What have I said today? God's declared it a year of Jubilee. And the only question is whether or not you'll agree and receive it. That's the danger in a word like this. Paradox. Don't try to find it in the world. It's not there. Secondly, passage. What's been closed, God has opened. Ask again. Knock again. Try again. Third, possession. Not just defined as the fact that maybe we've got the paper, but it's ownership plus access. That we are accessing everything that God has declared belongs to you and to me. Four, the prodigals. Natural prodigals, they're coming home, yes. But the functional prodigals, you and I, regardless of what you think you've squandered, whether resources or years, God will add back. And lastly, we practice this through simplicity, through priority, and through rest.